Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humble brags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, all one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. My name's Matt Georges, and this month I'm talking to Zed Ansari. I had the pleasure of meeting Zed face-to-face at my house, and I have to say, it's a real shame I don't video my episodes, because he's, without a doubt, one of the sharpest dressed guests I've ever had. His style is uh, eclectic, I'd say, and very much his own, and that really reflects his attitude to life and to work as well. Bit of a digression here, but before the pandemic, I was on holiday and I got chatting to the bloke on the sunbed next to me at the pool. That wasn't Zed, but it turned out he was the head of a special needs school in North London and a coach of other head teachers. At the time, I was putting a new team of people together at my place of work and, as usual, I was worrying about things. His advice was to identify my core values so that I could shape my team around those. I didn't have a clue what my core values were, so he gave me a list from a book called Achieve Your Potential with Positive Psychology by a guy called Tim LeBon. Now, to be honest, I normally steer clear of self-help literature on the basis that the only self that usually helps is the author via their bank balance, but this is one I'd really highly recommend. Tim LeBon is an NHS psychotherapist, and he only uses techniques that have been shown by peer-reviewed research to work. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes for that. Anyway... One of those values turned out to be playfulness, which surprised me in the sense that I didn't really consider it to be a value, but it also didn't surprise me in the sense that I've always felt it's important not to take anything too seriously. Now that's not to say anyone should be playful all the time, more that it's helpful, and I would say healthy, to sometimes look at things from a different point of view. I tell that story because it was a genuinely joyful experience interviewing Zed. Early on in the recording, he says that he's at the point in his career where he only wants to do stuff that's fun. But actually, that sense of fun and playfulness feels built into his life so far. He started off as an accountant working at an advertising agency in London in the 1990s. Kate Moss apparently said that models should adopt the rock chip diet of coffee, cigarettes, champagne and vodka. That's actually the version of the diet acceptable for the mainstream media, but in reality it was coffee, cigarettes, champagne and cocaine that kept the advertising industry fuelled back then, and for all I know it probably still does now. So uh, a bit of a change of pace then to leave that and work for Crufts, which is exactly what Zed did. And for anyone who doesn't know, Crufts is a world-famous dog show held annually in the UK, and I would say it's probably one of the best places to go to understand just how eccentric the British can be when left to their own devices. Zed then left to work in Pakistan as a go-between for the Asian Development Bank and the Pakistani government, before returning to the UK and taking on numerous other roles, including starting his own construction company, before winding up in his current position as a lecturer in subjects as varied as accounting, employability skills, and becoming a nutritional professional. 
So, the usual mix of apparently unrelated eclectic career choices for a serendipity soup guest. But as always, there's a golden thread. In Zed's case, I would suggest it's his playfulness and his love of interacting with people. When Zed left after our recording, I watched him walk down the street and felt like my life was much fuller, richer and more joyful for having met him. And that wasn't just because he brought a bottle of wine for me and my wife and some chocolates for our kids. I hope you'll feel the same way once you've heard him tell his story. Okay, housekeeping. Not much this time round, actually. As ever, there's plenty of discussion about mental health, though nothing too deep, and there's some very mild swearies hiding in the verbal jungle too. But other than that, I think we're ready to go. Time for a taste of Serendipity Soup. Okay, hi. So I'm Zed Ansari, and I'm currently a lecturer at three different universities across seven different modules, and I'm quite new to it. I've only done it sort of for coming up to a year now, but I am really enjoying it. It's probably like one of the most fun things I've done. What what do you lecture in? So I lecture a variety of things. I started off lecturing in accounting. So by profession, I'm an accountant. So it was an accounting and statistics module. It was at the University of West London, and so they do a lot of really interesting courses, which they never had in my day. Things like, you know, aviation and airport management and events and things, culinary arts. And all of them had to do this one module, which was like really boring for them, which was accountancy. And it was like an introduction to accounting and statistics as well. It's the graveyard shift. It is. So, I mean, there's only so much you can do to make it exciting. But I would, (laughs) I do go in these classes saying, you know, I know this is really boring for you because you do really interesting stuff. However, you will use this for the rest of your life because I have been in board meetings where the chairman and the CEO do not know how to read the financial statements and you're literally spelling it out like, no, this is post-tax, no, this is pre, no, this is gross, this is net... And it becomes really painful. So I said, you all want to, I don't know, go into business, open your own restaurants and cafes and things, because a lot of the culinary arts students want to do that. Um, And I said, if you can't count your pennies or work out what net and gross and VAT is, then you're going to struggle. So that was initially what I was teaching. And then I'm now teaching. So a variety of things, uh, some management accounting, some financial accounting, uh, some accounting information systems kinds of modules. But what I'm also teaching now is academic development employability and also a module which is called becoming a nutritional professional for the culinary arts <laughs> students so these um, modules I'm really enjoying because they're so out there they're so different to anything I've ever done or taught but they've kind of become a bit life coachy because it's amazing how a lot of the students are from such diverse backgrounds different demographic and you feel like A, some of them are mature students, so they seem to have this fear. You can see it in their eyes and almost like an imposter syndrome. They can't believe they're at university and they've let them in. And then they're almost too afraid to, like, speak their mind or, you know, choose what they're going to say or or even ask a question. So it's become a bit life coachy because I'm trying to sort of raise their confidence and tell them they are good enough and, you know, they can set their own goals. And so one of the things I do is these like mock interviews. I'll say like, okay, we can interview you on any job in the world you want to do. It could be an application for a NASA astronaut or an engineer or a dancer or whatever you want to do. And a lot of them, they want to open their own restaurants and become chefs and what have you. And they'll say, okay. And I'm like, okay, so what are you applying for here? What is this interview for? Oh, I just would like to be a kitchen hand. 
Oh. And I was like, would you not want to be the chef? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. And I was like, well, I've given you free reign, so let's make this about being a chef and do it from there. And they're just like, it's almost like they didn't know it was a possibility. So it's really rewarding. And, and I really enjoy it, all of that side of thing. Sounds amazing. Those two modules, one, you said them very quickly and then you started talking again. And my brain was just stuck with those things. Nutrition. So the culinary arts students, they do various nutritional, scientific, microbiological kind of modules. And amongst them, they do this one, which is becoming a nutritional professional. So it's all about academic skills and also the various paths they can choose in nutritional career. And to be honest, it's mind blowing even for me because I had no idea there were so many routes. You go to M&S and you buy like a ready meal and how much goes into that in the background that what the the product of the development the packaging the all the microbiology to do with it all of that kind of thing so they can go into production they can go into like research they can go into science they can go into like food and beverage so it's just kind of opening their eyes to it because they're quite new they're sort of first year students as well at this point they just need to understand all the avenues that are available to them and how to do that. Yeah. To be honest, when I started, I just thought, well, this is a bit silly because nobody taught us these things. We didn't have modules to teach us time management and organisation type things. But having now taught it for a, a year, a couple of semesters, you realise that actually just talking through these things and thrashing it through with them brings to the surface so many things. Like I've got one student, she's amazing. She's like an A-grade student, really hardworking. She's a mum. And she said, God said, I thought my time management was really good, but actually I'm pants. You know, it's not very good at all. And just doing this exercise has brought that to the surface for me. Mm. And, and so it is nice to see, you know, people embrace, you know, the growth and, and, and the possibilities and the self-improvement. Yeah. So, well, self-improvement is nice. interesting because I was thinking about how that applies to you here because... <laughs> it's a never-ending start... story, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't it? It should be for all of us, surely. But So how do you go from accountancy, because you were kind enough to send me your CV beforehand... And most of your CV is kind of accountancy-focused. Corporate, accountancy, finance, yeah. And yet I know that that's only a very small part of what you do. So let's just zoom in a bit. How did you get to nutrition? Just that one jump, where did that come from? So it obviously wasn't one jump. It was through lecturing and kind of becoming a bit more au fait with lecturing and realising that there were other modules I could teach and I was interested in teaching. Okay. I won't take on a module unless I feel that I really can give something sure. to it. And I want to do a good job, obviously. So they've asked me sometimes in the second year or third year really tough accountancy modules and you just think god it's gonna be so boring so and i don't <laughs> want that to come across i won't do it okay uh, but if i feel like there's a lot i can give and it can make a difference and i'm going to enjoy i'm at that point <laughs> in my career and my age where i only want to do things that are fun right uh, so even though they've offered me permanent positions and everything and i've just declined them because i'd rather teach across different universities, teach different modules and not get bogged down with all that admin and meetings and meetings for meetings and, you know, all of that stuff because I've done it for 25 <laughs> years and it's just dull. Yeah, fair enough. And so if you 
look back on your career, can you focus on some of those points where you were going on one direction and then for some reason you kind of jumped onto another track and what what happened there? Yeah, so most of my early years, I'd say the first sort of nine, ten years, so it's almost like sections of my life that this has happened in. The first sort of almost ten years was spent in advertising and it was in the sort of mid-90s when it was just all like, I know people laugh now, but it was all about convertible cars and mobile phones and it wasn't a thing. If you had a mobile phone from work, it was like, wow. You were even taxed on it as a benefit. And they were great heady days where you worked really hard and you played even harder. And who was that? There was some supermodel who who said that, you know, the model's diet is four C's, which is cocaine, champagne, coffee and cigarettes. And it was very... I don't know even know if you can say <laughs> these things now, but it was very much the lifestyle and it was great. And, you know, one of the clients was Moet and Shondon, for example. One of the clients was, you know, something else that's more fun. And they were great days. And although I was an accountant working in the finance department, but... Agency life was amazing, really good. And then I got headhunted into uh, working for the Kennel Club. And um, yes, and running Cross the Dog Show, which was again such a complete... Again, I was uh, sort of financial controller there and somebody had pursued me because they were in a bit of a mess and you know mm, um, too much cocaine champagne no not no, there no true. that there it was different <laughs> <laughs> over there it was more a case of you know they've been there was a bit archaic shall we say in their systems and and the way they ran their accountancy departments finance and and they needed a bit of a shake-up and so the person who approached me said you know i just know there's one person who can fix this and it's you so wow. off I went. That's an amazing thing for someone to say it to was, you. It was That's really something. kind of them. And, but obviously you have to go in like all guns blazing. And then, of course, you're the bad cop because you're literally shaking up the whole thing uh. to make it work. And it was just things like, you know, I'd open a drawer and they'd be like... 20 pound notes coming out of it and I'm just like what's all this cash in this drawer and it's like oh that's for like subsistence and well what subsistence is this oh it's when people go to the dog shows okay and where are the equivalent receipts or the expense forms oh what what's that it was right. a bit so then I was having to make everyone do expense forms and so there was a real pushback who's asking for these we've never done these before why aren't we trusted so I was like well listen this is a business for all intents and purposes, it's just how it's got to be. So anyway, it took me a year to fix it all up and the audits became much shorter because what used to happen was the audit was started, it would go on and on and on and then everybody was too scared to speak to the auditors or ask them, tell them anything and then they'd go off to Birmingham for the show and, and the auditors were still hanging around come end of March and it's like, for God's sakes, this is just going on and on, it's right. got to end. So I cut it down from, I think it used to be about four or five weeks to like ten days. Okay. And things like that. So that was great and really different. And then <laughs> that was one moment where everything changed. Uh, and then the next moment where everything changed was where uh, we talked about Pakistani and heritage. And we talked about living in Pakistan and doing a stint out there. And it was always going to be like in a couple of years, as these things are, until my wife one day said, listen, if we're going to do this, we should just do it now. Because like, why not? And I thought, yeah, you're right, actually, so let's do it. So we literally just put everything in a 40-foot container and off we went. I mean, I did secure a job there beforehand, so there was that to go to, and that was a very sort of life-changing experience as well. It was absolutely loved living there, absolutely loved being there. The job I went into, which I shan't name, was like... It was a fantastic job, very high-profile, but with that came so many, like, 
difficulties as well. It was a bit like being owned. If you've ever watched that film called The Firm with Tom Cruise, it was a bit like that. So oh like you'd be kept an eye on wherever you went and you were given great benefits. So you were made members of clubs where the president, you know, used to frequent and those things. So you were expected to be there. But if you weren't going there often enough, then you were questioned as to why you weren't. Everybody in the town seemed to know what I earned because it was quite a lot for the time. So it was the worst of absolute horrific American corporate environment and the worst of Pakistani corporate environment, which can be quite unprofessional at a time. So it was really, really difficult. I became quite unwell because of the stress of it all. I was about 36 at the time, so I wasn't a spring chicken mm. and I'd worked in a few places. So it wasn't like I went into it blindly, but it, the level of like office politics and like selling your grandmother was just another level. Wow. So that ended after a year and um, I ended up then for, for the next year working with a great British Bob called British Power International and they were the go-between the Pakistan government and the Asian Development Bank who were giving loans to the Pakistan government so we were doing all the due diligence and stuff and it was brilliant because I worked for, for a couple of Brits who lived out there so you know the same sense of humour and the thing with me for them was I was English enough what I needed to be and I was Pakistani enough when I okay. needed to like you know crack the whip and get people doing things and you know you were kind of like almost taking a lot of these very high you know government official type people to task because there was like about a billion dollars worth of aid coming and it was our job to sort of just help them decide where they were going to allocate it so yeah. it was really interesting we I didn't realize at the time I just sort of settled through it but now I think about it it was quite quite different and interesting it really sounds like yeah it. yeah so whereabouts were you living in in Pakistan? So I was Sorry. living in Pakistan, which is basically where we were based. But uh, my office was mainly based in Lahore. So I was traveling between Lahore and Islamabad sort of okay. a couple of times a week, every week, which I loved because Lahore is like where my heart is. Islamabad is a bit more like where we lived. And okay. it's a, Islamabad is the capital and it's a man-made city and it's very kind of organized and it's split into grids in a grid system. Okay. It's If you... Move to Pakistan from Europe, from the West, you can kind of slot into it more easily than if you, for example, end up in Karachi or Lahore, which are the other two big cities. But Lahore is just where it all happens. That's where my heart is. Yeah. And now the Karachi people will listen to this and say, no, it's Karachi where it all happens. And to be honest, they're all very different, but they're all amazing in their own ways. Yeah. So I was between Karachi and Lahore. Okay. And so what prompted the decision to go there in the first place then? Well, I'm of mixed heritage. So, you know, I'm as English as you can get and then I'm as Pakistani as you can get. And you just try and navigate your way through life and mm. come to a place where you just try and make the best of both worlds. And I had lived there in uh, my early teens as well. So I absolutely loved it. I still, I absolutely love it. And it's like everything people from the West don't expect it to be. And, you know, it's not for everyone. It's difficult. You have sort of quite low-level problems like electricity and gas shortages and all of that. But if you can sort of just get through all of that, 
kind of white noise. Mm. It's just great. The sun shines, everyone's smiling most of the time, and they've got it hard. And, and the other thing that Pakistan does, for me, certainly, is it just keeps you so grounded because you're never more than a couple of metres away from somebody who's working for you or somebody who's quite literally no other way to describe it. They work from day to day. They're trying to raise kids. They're trying to just work on the absolute minimum wage for people who are quite ruthless, quite rude. And so it really makes you value your life, value what you have. You're suddenly responsible. You feel very responsible. I mean, I have two young kids, but I felt really responsible for, like, you know, the cook and the cleaner and the driver, which you do all have a lot of staff. But them and their families, you feel responsible for their education. You feel responsible for their well-being, their health, their food, their nourishment, everything. And that's nice as well, that you're in a position to help people as well. There's a couple of things that have kind of gone through my mind as you were talking there. You've come across, in the nicest way, paternalistic there. You're looking after people who rely on you. But I could imagine, given the culture that you talked about in that previous company, that some people would not feel that way. A lot of them, because they think if you're going to be nice to them, then they're just going to take the mick, and some of them do. But then that's just life. You've got to just... It's a fine balance. You also get a lot of guilt. So my wife was constantly feeling so guilty about how our kids had amazing toys to play with and so many books to read and everything, and they didn't. Some of those families were still helping even today. In any way we can, you Mm. know, with their education, with clothing, with whatever you can, because they're kind of upping their standard of living with this new generation and people have access to the web now and I have to say I think the internet has really helped bring everyone together and everybody I mean when I used to visit Pakistan in the early 90s the late 80s they'd all laugh because our fashion was so different my hair was so different and then you'd go a couple of months later and then you'd see people having the same haircut and then the, you'd go to the like same hairdresser and he'd be like oh I tried your haircut on like you know a couple of guys and now they're all doing they all want it your haircut so it was like really but now because they're so you know, they've got a lot more exposure they can see how everyone else lives so it's nice that we're all kind of coming together in a way mm. which is a bit awful but you know (laughs) yeah absolutely considering you're working on accountancy a lot of what you were explaining wasn't really to do with accounting it it was to do with people and 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 how how do you make changes and how do you bring people with you or at least kind of whip them into line or something so i think i've always been a people person i think i just became an accountant because really when you're 18 you don't know what to do i actually wanted to become an architect and the careers guy who came to the school he was an architect he was so uninspiring that by the end of that 45 minutes i just thought god i don't want to do that because it was very negative everything he said like oh well it's seven years of exams and most people at the end of the seven years they either make it or break it most people don't make it and I just thought, God, I don't want to do that for seven years and then like end up like not very successful. So I became an accountant. Well, to be honest, I went into a business degree and then I ended up becoming an accountant due to the job I've landed, which was in the agency, which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And then my boss at the time was like, Zed, you know you've got to qualify. You know you've got to qualify. And I'd done my master's. To fully qualify as an ACMA accountant, I had to do, I was exempt from something like 10 out of the 16 exams. So it was a bit of a no-brainer. So I I kind of begrudgingly did one one year and got that then did another one the next year and got that and did my finals and eventually qualified by which time I'd become quite a fully fledged accountant in work and thank god for that because my last three jobs I could have done them probably standing on my head however I wouldn't have landed the jobs because I wasn't qualified because people get a real they sort of hit a brick wall when they are employing accountants and if they're not qualified they just think they're not worthy or they don't know how to do things 
person. A lot of the time they do, but you just can't get the jobs unless you are a fully qualified one. So that's kind of how I became an accountant. Having worked in an agency for my first sort of formative years, I just got into that lifestyle and I took it with me wherever I went. So the Kennel Club hopefully became, the Christmas parties became a bit jazzier because I was organising them and just forcing everyone to go out because that's just what I was used to, the lifestyle. It was to, we literally worked hard and played hard. And there were Every so often there'd be a lunchtime where we'd never go back. And the amazing thing about that life back then was all the people you worked with, and it sounds really bizarre, but they were your closest friends and you did socialise with them. And I'm still close friends with a lot of them to this day, Mm. 30 years on. And it was just fantastic. So when I then moved back from Pakistan and, and I'd sworn when I left there that agency life really was good for you if you're young, free and single. We're talking about advertising agencies here. That's, advertising, yeah. Marcoms, that whole kind of area, which has developed a lot more now. So when I moved back to London, I ended up in a job in a branding agency. I must have had three or four two-hour interviews with about four or five or six different people yeah. before I got that job. Now, I'd moved back myself and the family was still in Pakistan. I had to get a job because the mortgage had to be paid and all of this kind of thing. And I'd done three months uh, working for the Affordable Art Fair, which I really enjoyed. But that was obviously for a three-month stint. And then I landed this job finally, eventually. And this is what I will say to people. I just didn't get a good feeling about this job throughout the whole interview process, selection process, the vibe I was getting from the interviews, all of this. But when you're that desperate to work, you need the job, you need to earn. It was a really good job. We're paying well, everything. Anyway, I took it on and I remember the first day I stepped over the threshold just thinking it was a miserable Monday morning it was raining and I just thought I don't want to be here I just want to go home like a child almost well first day at school but you know you're an adult so you don't do that you've worked really hard to finally get this job and you know they're really welcoming and and so off I went and it was probably the worst best part of 10 years of my life career-wise but it was the making of me And by the time you're 30, 7, 8, you think you know everything. And God, you don't. I learned so much, but it was so hard. And it was, I know people say, you know, investment banking is so much pressure and everything, Mm. but the marketing communications agency is, life is so much pressure. And we had amazing clients and the work they did was fantastic, but it was just like, you were just never going to be good enough. And... It wasn't that you weren't good enough, but it was the powers that be would like to keep you in such a place where you were just almost there, but not because it suited everyone. You're reporting to six or seven different people. They are all clashing with each other. There's huge growth, but you're not being given any credit for it. You're watching the bonuses flying around and you're making the bonus plan. You're putting it all together. You're on the spreadsheet and then you're not getting it just the worst and eventually you know after like I say the best part of 10 years you are promised that there's going to be a slight change and your job's safe so there'll be there's no redundancies there's nothing happening your job is safe and you think great and then four months later they just chew you up spit you out and it's the worst time because suddenly your kids are at that point where they're growing up you've worked really hard to get to a point where you're in a good job you're now in your late 40s nobody wants you and I can say that through my experience, mm. 
I must have been applying for jobs for about three, four years and nobody wants you. And I'm a qualified accountant. I've got all this experience. I know what I'm doing. I can work with different people. I can work in different industries. I've, by now, I've worked in advertising, branding, dogs, you know, <laughs> charity, gas and oil, Pakistan government, all of these different experiences. And you're too old, but not old enough. You're too young, but not young enough. You're too senior, but not senior enough. You're too junior, but not junior enough. And I got it because why would someone want to employ someone in their late 40s well, they could probably get like a 33-year-old to do the job for half the money. Fine. So then when you go and apply for those jobs paying half the money, oh, no, we think you'll get really bored. He was great. He could probably do the job standing on his head, but he'll leave. He won't stick around. And there's nothing you can do to convince them otherwise. Mm. And it was just so awful. And the day I got made redundant was literally the first day that the diggers started on the foundations of like this spectacular new extension that I was going to do and to the house. And, and it was just like, what do I now do? So me being the kind of stubborn goat that I am, I just thought, well, I've got to carry on. I've got to finish this because at least if I have to sell the house in a minute, it'll be worth selling. Right. So I did carry on and I managed to sort of struggle and keep it going for four years. And in the meantime, I ended up with a, you know, childhood friend starting this construction company and working <laughs> construction because over the years, sorry, just going back a little bit, over yeah. the years, I've done interiors for years and I sort of did them for people when they've asked me to do them because it's just always come naturally to me I've, I've always been into I remember like fixing things like arranging cushions in the house I know it's just so cliche since I was about six seven removing things in the house moving like huge bits of furniture just by like leaning against my back and pushing these wardrobes around and so and there's a great funny thing of that I'd actually forgotten until a few years ago that when I was 17 my mum went to work and I put our family house on sale with, she came home, obviously, and I just casually mentioned over dinner, oh, by the way, I put the house up for sale. And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you know, this has been leaving this on sale now, it's in the market. But then they just come around, take a few photos. They didn't care who was asking to put the house on sale. But he's a 17-year-old, and, and off he went. And she was, like, horrified, as you can imagine. Yeah. And she goes, well, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? And I was like, well, I found another one. You've just got to sell this and buy that one. And she did it. What? Yeah, yeah, she did it. And we, were, we, we lived in it for 13 years. It was great. So I've been doing this stuff for years. So I ended up working. We, we sort of set up this construction company doing mainly extensions and construction. So I finished this extension on the house and it was kind of like my dream house. So it had a bit of everything. It had the big, you know, 10 foot island and the marble and the glass and the glass roof. And so it was, there was something. So it was almost like a showroom for prospective clients so all the jobs we got was off the back of my own house and then they wanted me to then do the interiors for them as well which was just it was like my dream job honestly mm -hmm. I could stand in the freezing snow for like 10 hours a day watching the steels go up and everything and we went very very quickly from like smallish jobs to the last one we did was uh, about a 600 grand job which was like a mansion seven bedrooms seven bathrooms lifts and dog rooms and dog showers and cinemas. Can I just stop you there? Dog showers? Yes, yeah, so a separate bathroom for the dog, a separate room for the dogs, everything, which was great. Unfortunately, Brexit hit after those two years and I ended up, we just had to like, the pipeline just faded away and it was really, really sad because it, we just couldn't do anything. All the materials just stopped coming in, mm. they doubled in price, we just couldn't keep it going. 
So back on the heap, <laughs> looking for work, ended up working for a production, fashion production company who did, again, really good work, really good work, doing all the kind of, you know, all the magazines, uh, all the photography, all the short films of all the campaigns, huge names, you know, Gucci, Versace, everyone, which was great mm. and sort of promised a sort of permanent job there and everything. Three months later, I don't know. Decided, no, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to let you go. Redundant by text, that was on the train. Ooh. So that was the end of that. And so, yeah, it's been a bit of a... <laughs> it's been a bit of a, a roller coaster. It really sounds it. So thinking about the thought you had that when you went into... Um, there was a company you worked in for 10 years and you had that really bad feeling about kind of first day at school moment. Yeah. You stayed there for 10 years. Yeah. So what... Because the carrot was always dangling just within arms reach, just within arms reach. And, you know, it was a good place to work. The work they did was amazing. I really believed in the work they did. They were very, very able. They won awards and all of that. So I wanted to make a go of it, and I'm not a quitter. And then you just get sucked into the whole thing, and you're, you know, you're just getting older and older, and you are too scared to just like give it all up because you know your kids are growing up, you've got, you've now built this dream house, you've got a mortgage to pay, all of this kind of thing, and you just end up really stuck. But in the end, all your fears, everything you were scared of losing, you lose everything. I literally lost everything. I had to sell the house. I had to sell the car. We lost everything, and you just think, pushing fifty, you know, on the scrap heap. And it's times like that you really know who your friends are. And all these things take their toll on everything, your relationships, your kids, your temper, mm. all of these things. But when I think about it now, I think the last sort of five, six of those nine, ten years, I think I just went through in some kind of days. All I know is I used to wake up and from the moment I woke up, I used to count down the hours till I could go back to bed. And this went on for years, but you just put on a front and you just carry on because you're running a house, you're mm. doing things for everyone. You don't want anyone else to see you or your weakness. You don't want anyone else to start worrying about you because then, then they'll worry more and all of these things. And I lost everything. And to this day, I cannot drive past that old house. I can't yeah. because it was my everything. I All I wanted since I was a kid was to have an amazing house because I was so into it. And, you know, I lost my father when I was nine. So my mum had to, she was only 28 and a half herself and she had to raise us on her own. And she did an amazing job. I wanted always to be better than everyone else, do the best of my ability, you know, have the biggest house or the nicest car, all these really ridiculous things, but they are just drivers because mm. you've lost something as a child. So and I, got, I finally got it all and then I lost it all. So it's just... It's just the way life is. And this is what I teach a lot of these students now. And the two things I say is, one, if there's one thing you can give your kids, just give them confidence, because confidence will take you everywhere. And I, even as a grown-up, even as somebody in my mid-40s, I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have it in me to push back. I just took all the crap they threw at me just took it and took it because I felt like I had no choice I was cornered and if I went back now I'd do everything in a very different way so one give your kids confidence mm. and two I say to them that if you don't have adaptability and flexibility and resilience you're not going to do very well in life because no matter how calm your life is or how much you know clever you are or how attuned you are to, or how much you've got everything set up for you life will throw you a curveball mm. and it will come and hit you in the most spectacular way 
and you're just gonna have to get up again. And what I will say is, I'm, I'm a Muslim. I'm, I'm not hugely practicing, but I do have a very, very core, strong core faith, and that kind of does get you through. And things happen. How I became a lecturer was just having a conversation with a school dad in the school playground, who I didn't even know very well, but for a year and a half, he always said to me, like, I think you'd be a really good lecturer, Zed, you should try it. And I just thought, well, I've not done a PGCE, I've never taught, and I can't think of anything worse than teaching, like, school, for example. He took my CV, and then one day he said, oh, you're going to get a call from someone today. And I said, really? What do you mean? And he goes, (laughs) "Uh, she's calling you in for an interview. And I said, what for? And he goes, to become a lecturer. And I was like... Are you kidding me? Like, I've never taught... And he said, well, just turn up, do your best and see how it goes. And I said, listen, have you told her that I've never actually taught before? And he said, he just started laughing like a naughty kid. He goes, no, I didn't. But, you know, you're just going to have to wing it, Zed. And so I, I did wing it. And But I got this terrible guilt 10, 15 minutes into this interview. And she was lovely. And I said, um, I don't know if so-and-so <laughs> mentioned this, but I've not actually taught before. And she was amazing. She just said, well... You say that, but I've been talking to you for about 15, 20 minutes and you seem very engaging. You have a lot of expression and I think you'll be fine. Wow. And I was like, wow. And so that's how it happened. And and I've absolutely loved it. So it's almost like full circle. And, And I will say now, I could have done this job 20 years ago, but I don't think I would have been very good at it. It's life and all your ups and downs and your experiences that then, I think, prepare you to give the students a slightly different perspective or tell them stuff that is actually true. You know, I can give them examples mm. of business. I can give them examples of something's worked out properly or not properly in, in a business or in, in an accounting environment or whatever context it might be. You mentioned this, this tension. I really want to get your view on this, is the tension between not quitting, sticking with stuff, pushing through it. But then the point at which you think, actually, I'm doing more harm than good with that mentality. Because what you've described to me seems admirable. The idea that, yeah, okay, I'm not enjoying this job, but I've got a lot of people relying on me, mortgage to pay, I've got bills to pay, need to stick with this. And then the other side of it, which is that maybe after a while that starts to turn into something more like fear. Yeah. Like maybe I can't quit. It it does. It does become fear. It does become fear because you're scared of everything. You're scared that you're not going to be able to get another job because you've been trying. Mm. Nobody wants you. You're scared that you're now in your late 40s, for example, in my instance. Mm. Uh, You're scared that if you can't be the main breadwinner and no longer as you are, you know, who's going to feed the kids? What's going to happen? Are we going to end up homeless? And it's really difficult. I don't know what it is. Either the fact that you have no choice makes you more resilient. Mm. Maybe if I'd had the choice, I wouldn't have been. But I think if hindsight's a great thing, but I should have just quit on that second day and found something else then. Because, you know, at the time it was less money than I ended up with in the end. But there were more jobs at that because by the end of it, I was too senior as well. That's the other problem. You, you become so senior that then nobody wants you either because they have already decided in their heads that you're going to just poo-poo everything that's mm. or they think everything else is beneath you but I'm not like that yeah I don't mind getting stuck in I don't mind as long as again it's making your heart sing and you're enjoying it I just think you need to be 
happy going to work. And I think this is also a sign of the time. So I think generationally, when I you know, finished university, that's what you did. You'd get a job in a good consultancy or somewhere, a graduate training scheme, if you could, or whatever. And you'd end up working there. And then you, you know, you just keep sort of moving up the ranks, getting more and more miserable. At this point, somewhere you've settled down, you had kids or whatever, and you're carrying on, carrying on, and then you retire and you die. <laughs> but it's not like that now. It hasn't been like this for the last 10, 15 years. And I'll tell you why. Because when I was in the agency that I worked for last, we'd get interns coming, and they're like nineteen, twenty, and you know, they've got show reels and they've done this and they've done that, and it's like, what did I know when I was eighteen or nineteen? Like nothing. <laughs> compared to these guys they're yeah. so cocksure but with it also comes a slight sense of entitlement so they come into these internships expecting to be like ceo mm. executives already so there's a little bit of that but they take no shit from anyone they know what they want they go and get it if it's not down this way they'll find another way and i see it now in my own kids they just don't take any crap from anyone. And I just think, you know what, good on you. Because I didn't have that. My mum always says, everything I raised you with, all these kind of values just seem to not work anymore. So she goes, you know, all these things we used to say, tell the truth, have integrity, don't shout at people, don't be pushy, don't trample over other people, don't scream and shout and throw tantrums or throw your toys out of the pram. Honestly, I have seen really senior people do this and get promotions. I've seen people walk out of board meetings and, sorry, this is a waste of my time, I'm leaving. And I've just looked at them thinking, God, if I did that, you'd have me out. And they've gone on to have, you know, become top dog. Yeah. And I just think, this isn't fair. <laughs> you feel a bit cheated because I just mm. thought, you know, a lot of the times I thought, well, maybe I should have just thrown a strop at every given moment and just said, no, I'm not coming in or disappeared from my desk for like three, four, five days until they're begging you to come back because they want you more. Mm. But you can't become like that. You need to be true to yourself. So I'm done with all that game playing. And not that I ever part yeah. took in it, but I'm done with it all. And I, I just don't want any of that kind of like office politics or passive aggressive bullshit. It's just, it's, it's no. just not healthy. I was thinking, interesting, that I think definitely has been a shift in the workplace, hasn't there, around what I've been introduced to doing this podcast, the portfolio career. People kind of jump in from yeah. one thing to another. And I guess maybe in the past, I was always thinking of that as being like, I think I was brought up, uh, if you don't mind me saying, I'm slightly younger than you, but nevertheless. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone seems to be younger than me. <laughs> but, uh, but with very similar values. You know, but tell the truth, you don't quit, you have integrity. And also a kind of linear mindset as well that says, yeah. you know, if I was to jump ship, I would just jump ship from... For example, a company making steel things to a company making plastic things. Yeah. You know, you know yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. really that much of a yeah. jump. Whereas now a portfolio career aims to be people jumping from things that you would say, well, how have you managed that? I hadn't thought about any of this because you, it's just the hustle. You just have to do what you have to do as right. life throws it at you. I hadn't stopped to even think about this. I know it sounds really peculiar, but I hadn't. So you don't realise, you just go through it, don't you, and yeah. you end up doing things. It's, just, it's like the acting thing. I just fell into it and I really enjoyed it. And I thought, wow. And it just went on for a couple of years, actually. And, you know, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And I, had, I didn't realise I had the ability in me because you just don't think you're good enough for that or you don't think you'll remember your lines and live theatre is really difficult. What happened here then because you've just thrown another yeah, curveball. So 
I don't know if the, all of this is because my circle of friends is so varied, age-wise, demographic-wise, you know, background, culture, so many different friends I have doing different things. So a really good friend of mine, she's a producer and director, and she had written a play and she'd asked me to help her cast the play. So I, we were interviewing all the actors that were coming in and everything, and then there was one of the parts was left. And she said, oh, we've just got this one left now. I said, yeah, we, we better get a few more people in because time's running out. And she goes, why don't you do it? And I said, oh, don't be so silly. And we just laughed. And I just said, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, she goes, no, I'm serious. I think you should do it. And I was like, what? And she goes, well, because I was reading the other part as through all the auditions. And she goes, I think you can just do it. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm really scared. <laughs> but she almost, like, pushed me into it, and I did it. And it, was, it wasn't the main role. There wasn't really a main role. The main role was, like, this monster. It was a ch children's play. And then we ended up doing it at the Royal Festival Hall, and it became a part of this huge things. And the next thing, I'm being interviewed by the BBC and all of this kind of thing. And it was just quite fascinating, really. But, again, such a laugh, because we had such a great time doing it. I was going to say, this wasn't... We're not talking Amdram in the church hall, are No, we? Yeah, it wasn't quite... And round in the church hall, it was a bit like you know, it was being filmed, and there was a lot of press about it. And uh, a couple of the shows were part of this huge lifestyle show in Olympia, so it was done on the main stage there. And and then the second time, it was all at the Royal Festival Hall as part of something else. And it was like, my goodness, because you said yes, didn't it? One of my recent podcasts was with um, called Chris Grimes, who uh, he's an impro improvisational comedian, and the essence of improv comedy is yes and. So you're always taking, you know, you, you've taken things to kind of more and more absurd extremes, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. where the comedy gold lies. Yeah. But what he does as a coach, so portfolio career, yeah. improvisational comedian coach, he's like, well, what if you applied that to your job or to your life? Where would that take you? Mm. And it's just really similar to what you were saying there is that the yes and is twofold there, I would say. One is through the contacts and the people that you're happy to talk to and mm. just have a chat with and you never know what might come of that. Yeah. And then the second is when something concrete comes along, you're like, bang, I'll give it a go. Let's see what happens. Yeah, I, I think Amazing. my mindset has changed a lot in the last sort of 10-ish years. I just firmly believe that if something comes your way, it's for a reason. So mm. I just say yes to whatever opportunity I get because I just think, well, why not? You know, you only live once. So I think post the acting as well, I've kind of got this sort of attitude where I'll just say yes to whatever and then just see how it goes and wing it and it's amazing I just think human beings are amazing because you just don't know what the human being is capable of physically and mentally and emotionally but I think it's quite incredible what the human psyche and the physicality of it all is capable of yeah. you can just push and push and push yourself to extremes but a lot of it is mind over matter I do do a lot of physical stuff you know I go to the gym a lot I look after my health a lot I do more of it for my mind really just to mm. keep yourself kind of level headed it gets you out of that zone the I don't know the endorphins or whatever it is that kick in they yeah. do help you know I've been doing yoga for about 23 <laughs> 4 5 years I think so and again I was not, I don't do it just for flexibility. A lot of it is to do with my mind. I find I'm quite a highly strung person. I've got a very hyperactive brain all the time. I even used to work in my sleep at times. And um, yoga is the only place I can actually switch off because that's what they teach you to mm. meditate, to switch off and to let your thoughts come in and just pass out. And you do. Mm. It's the only place where I'm totally Zen ever, which is ironic because my name is Zed and people call me Zen as well. <laughs> and I'm not Zen usually. And so, yeah, 
I just think it's all of these things have really helped. I think my mental health, probably. Mm. We all suffer at times, as I say. I Again, when I think back now, some of my really dark times were pretty bad, but I didn't realise. Because mm. you just think, well, it's just life. You just carry on, don't you? You just get on with it. Yeah. Because, again, I'm from that generation where you just, well, oh, just get on with it. Yeah. Just get on with it. I don't think if there's anybody I've interviewed who hasn't mentioned their mental health, and I'm struggling to think now. Exactly as you say, that there's this sense of, like, when you're in the thick of it, you don't know what the symptoms are, so you're not looking for symptoms. It's not like a physical illness where, you know, if your knee hurts, it's like, ah, well, my knee doesn't normally hurt, so therefore yeah. there is a problem. Yeah, It's a far more insidious and gradual mm. de- decline to the point where you, you, it just becomes normal where for me something happened that was just like bang and suddenly you, it's like you shoot out of yourself and you look back down at yourself and you're like that's not normal well, I, I didn't used mm. to be like this yes yeah, yeah yeah so it's yeah and for me yoga similarly found uh, I've kind of fallen out of practice now but I did yoga for a long time and that I really empathize with what you're saying about There's a physical element to that which seems to kind of, you know, blood flowing and whatever, but there's also that calmness and just a sense of peace and quiet, and you have to work at that, ironically. Oh, oh, you have to work at it. Don't get me wrong. I've always been high-impact exercise as a person, but when I first started yoga, I just found it so dull Mm. and slow, and I'm like, God, has it ended yet? (laughs) That kind of thing. And an amazing... She was Indian, actually, instructor called Tracy, who really got me into it, because I was just going to leave, because I was like, listen, Tracy, there's only a few people here every week, and they're all these old dears and me, and I just feel a bit out of sorts, and she goes, please don't leave. You've got to just stick at it because you're quite good. You give it your all. So just keep going, keep going. So I did. And and it's been, bizarrely, it's been 20-whatever <laughs> years now. But I did keep going because it, it takes a good six, seven weeks to get into it, I think. And on the physical side of things, I wasn't very flexible. I could barely, like, reach to my knees. And now I can do, like, apart from a totally unaided headstand, I can do everything. To the best of my ability, you get people who sort of go flat you know, Mm. almost like a stapler, I always say, you know, on the ground. I'm not like that. But you do learn to push yourself. And it's incredible because sometimes you're in a certain position and you think, God, I can't do this. And they'll say, just give it one more centimetre. And you do. Mm. Or, you know, with the next exhale, go further by an inch and you do. And this is what I mean about how your physical body is capable of so much and we just don't push ourselves. But I truly believe that everything you put into your 20s and 30s, physically, exercise-wise, pays off in the long term, definitely. Mm. I always judge my fitness if I'm getting better or worse on how fast I can run up the escalators at Waterloo because there's two loads of them from the Jubilee line. (laughs) As long as you can run both, you're all right. You heard of those emotional intelligence quadrants, you know, the different colours for different people. And so blue is a lot more kind of analytical. Red is the sort of the people that would walk out of the the room halfway through, you know. The yellow is working, friendly, engaging, and the green people are the ones who kind of want to make sure that everybody's okay. And I'm a bit of all of them. Well, that's so just thinking, <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, it's quite yeah. hard to pick any one of those out. Uh, I am. Uh, my mother-in-law always says, you're just a contradiction to your own self. And again, like when I do interiors, like I absolutely love, you know, Minim and, you know, Armani, Casa, and then I absolutely love that 
over-the-top Versace Baroque home. I like black, I like white, I like simple, I like complicated. It's really tricky. I like plain, I like colour, I like... It's really complicated and I just think that's how my mind is. It's just mm. everything. I'm a Gemini, so I don't know if that makes a difference, but uh, <laughs> I've been told I'm a true Gemini, so, yeah. you know, a bit of everything. But I just think, well, you do only live once and you want to just experience as much as possible and you want to give back as much as possible and if you can make any changes to anyone's life for the better or for the good and if you could help someone in in a way that you don't even know you are yeah then, then i think well why not well yeah. that seems like a very fitting place to end it and okay. so it's been such a pleasure talking to you thank well, you thank, thank you for having me thank you for having me that's been it's been great you know so Absolutely. thank you it's my pleasure <laughs> Well, there you have it. Huge thanks to Zed for imparting both joy and wisdom in our time together. Thanks also to Julian Holmes for his awesome cover artwork, to my editor, Anna Gunn, to Acast for hosting the podcast, and of course, to you for listening. Remember, if you think you or someone you know could add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, get in touch. You can email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com, message me on LinkedIn, or tweet me using the handle at soupserendipity. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for another serving.